Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. This is Kelvin Chen. Thanks for joining me today for an interview with Henry Wu on his book, Met by the Millions, Mental Disorders and the Early Years of the World Health Organization. This book was published by the MIT Press in 2021. This is a book interested to any readers in the history of psychiatry, global mental health, colonial and global medicines with a focus on the WHO and the science and technology studies. This book offers a fascinating story about psychiatrists coming together in the post-World War II period to start an ambitious project on social psychiatry. It is a concise and insightful narrative about the psychiatrist's optimism to discover the epidemiology and classifications of mental disorders in a global scale. The thesis of this book, in, all, in the words of the author, is that a social psychiatry project was shaped by the post-war faith in technology and expertise and the universalizing visions of a word psychic. This idealism laid the foundations of today's global mental health system. I'll keep my introduction brief, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for your support for the channel. I'm here to talk with Harry Wu about his book, Mad by the Millions. Welcome to the New Books Network of Medicines. Thanks for doing this interview with me, and thanks for writing this amazing book, Harry. Oh, thank you, Kelvin. Let's start our interview with a very traditional question. I know this is your first book, and it is based on your dissertations. Do you mind sharing with our audience about how you start your research, what was, your, what was your initial focus, and does the book differ from the dissertation? Okay, thank you, Kevin, for first inviting me to our New Book Network. And actually, I have to say that uh, there is only one chapter in my uh, dissertation that was used to write up this book. Right? So actually, my dissertation was about the transnational formation of psychological trauma. But then there was one chapter about uh, the structure of the WHO and how actually a psychiatric diagnosis was uh, was made through the project of international classification of diseases. And then so that chapter uh, eventually became a journal article. And then I used that article to become uh, the opening chapter of my book. But the rest of it, uh, of the, the book, was uh, further researched in the WHO and also other archives worldwide. So it took me another six years to write up the book, right? And the initial focus of my dissertation was, um, was like what I said, it was just about one diagnosis. But then um, eventually that this book is, is about how the World Health Organization managed to uh, research schizophrenia. As this is actually uh, uh, related to the first international social psychiatry project that was initiated by the organization, uh, which was quite renowned. The project is called International Pilot Study of Schizophrenia. Uh, it's, uh, the abbreviation is IPSS. Wow, I can really tell like how much you translate your work from dissertation to this amazing book as we can see now. And I guess the first question I have in my mind is like most of your psychiatry history often examined in national or colonial context. 
So this brings you the very first questions for about your book. Why would you focus on the WHO? And what are the major arguments of your book? And how does that contribute to a more nuanced understanding of psychiatry and global medicine? Okay, so it's a long story. Uh, there are several backgrounds of my study. And I was trained as a medical doctor uh, before I decided to uh, venture out uh, in other other fields, right? But when I was doing my psychiatric residence in Taipei in a uh, local hospital, and then actually, actually that was part of the curriculum that we had to study, that we were told that Taiwan actually took part in uh, some WHO's projects, right? But as everyone knows, that Taiwan has always been excluded from the organization from 1972. And it was one year after uh, the country left uh, United Nations, right? And then so I was actually uh, very eager to know about what Taiwan actually contributed to the, uh, some WHO's projects. And secondly, I have always been fascinated by uh, so-called cross-cultural agenda in psychiatry. And then so it was actually uh, a trend for psychiatric trainees in Taiwan to take one year out to do something they they like, something they want to, uh, that something they want to do, other than, other than just continuing uh, uh, psychiatric residency training, like what other people all do. So I decided to study an MA just for one year, and I so I registered in a program called the MA Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex in the UK. And then, uh, actually, I was wondering whether or not I should continue to become a psychiatrist, or I can uh, choose something else. But then, actually, by when I was studying the module, that I was fascinated by a course called uh, Freud in Context, right? And that actually was a history class. So that fascinated me. I was trained as a science student. I never uh, knew how humanity social sciences research can be conducted but that uh, module did open my mind right and i can recall that uh, when i was practicing psychiatry i there was a lot of questions in my mind for example like oh these are all uh, a variety of east west questions freud's symbols can that be applied in eastern context and do we uh, have edible complex is that only a Western thing, uh, ancient Greek thing, um, uh, how that can be transformed in other cultures? Right? So uh, actually, I think this kind of history approach is, is so fascinated. I mean, fascinating. Right? So in the end, I decided not to go back to psychiatry. Actually, I'm from a psychiatric family. So uh, this is the very interesting opportunity for me to become not my family members, colleagues. Right? So uh, then this is a no way back. I became a historian. And then uh, when I'm uh, writing this book, I actually, well, just, uh, just uh, I mean, uh, just like what I said, that my dissertation was talking about the transformation of psychological trauma diagnosis uh, from a uh, very Western concept to a psychiatric disease 
that can be used in my own cultural context. But then when I'm writing this book, I rather come from a perspective of a, an English language reader. And then I don't really only want to focus on my country. So uh, the WHO become the focus. And actually, uh, for the past several years, there were a lot of people, a lot of historians writing about the history and all the criticisms about the DSM, uh, the American Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, the DSM system. And there are a lot of books talking about the so-called the Americanization of psychiatry. There, are, uh, For example, there uh, was Hannah Decker, who wrote about the formation of DSM-3, uh, the, uh, the story about Robert Spitzer, his contribution. And also after DSM-5 was published, there was another book, very, very, it's actually, I think, a bestseller. It's Alan Francis. He, uh, the head of the task force of DSM-4, he criticized uh, DSM-5 by writing this very interesting book called Saving the Normal. But I think there were very few people focusing on the story of ICD, the so-called International Classification of Diseases, that was uh, uh, published by the World Health Organization. And it's got several revisions right now. now uh, nowadays, we have ICD-11. right? So my book is actually uh, about the making of ICD-9. So there were actually a lot of revisions before this one. But then ICD-9 was the first ever internationally ratified uh, classification of diseases. And then so my book is actually talk about, it's actually a query about the commonality of psychiatric disorders after second, the Second World War. And it was shaped by, uh, a, in, in, in my own term, I, I talk about the scientific internationalism. It was also shaped by a group of visionary scientists who were involved in the project. And the project was also contingent upon a then available research method. So by that time, I, uh, I am actually talking about the, uh, the maturation of uh, psychiatric epidemiology and the making of metrics, this kind of idea. And also, it was the project was also shaped by uh, involving technology, which I think I'll, I'm going to I'm going to talk about it later. So the focus of uh, this book is about the first ever international social psychiatry project, and the project was to uh, for scientists to see whether or not mental disorders look alike internationally. Right. So they actually chose a psychiatric disorder to look at that was schizophrenia. And so the project is a, uh, became eventually became IPSS, International uh, Pilot Study of Schizophrenia. And then based on this, uh, scientists also wanted to, uh, to revise the international classification of diseases. And that became the number nine revision as a product. So my book is... Uh, uh, has several contributions. I mean, for example, now the international psychiatric diseases, this system, before it got criticized for being, uh, for becoming hegemonic, I actually, in my book, I argue that the project was actually an emancipatory project. It was some kind of a decolonizing project. The project was designed 
initially up to the Second World War to release people, to relieve people from the devastation of war, from the possible mental distresses uh, during the post-war rehabilitation period. And these scientists at the time, they believed that all humanity shared the same opportunity to develop mental disorders. And then so, uh, so this is the overall uh, structure of my book. And then uh, the, the main, if it is uh, something that can be applicable uh, for clinicians that I think my book is written to remind uh, current clinicians that we need to constantly reflect on what we are doing uh, with a good intention. Uh, one day it perhaps will become some, uh, some controlling tool uh, for example, that the international class, uh, disease classifications uh, that are that is now being criticized, right? Yes, thanks for your answer. It's fascinating to hear your research journey and how you write up this book. It beautifully shows the combinations of your professional knowledge about psychiatry and also a smooth and convincing narrative of truly transnational history. Also, thanks for a brief summary of your argument, Harry. I think the audience now have a basic sense of what this book is about. So let's mo- look more deeply in the following chapters. You mentioned a lot of interesting concepts uh, earlier, like scientific na- internationalisms, universality of classifications, that we will come back to ch- talk about that later. And in particular, in chapter two, you mentioned the concept of world citizenship emerged after the World War II. In your work, uh, Boring from Book, world citizenship is a term propagated by Brooke Chisholm, a Canadian psychiatrist and also the first director of the WHO. The term itself presumes the universality of humanity together with the aspirations of promoting peace. This is a fascinating idea to examine the very messy and unclear territories of psychiatry in the 1950s and 60s. Will you mind explain more about the origins and significance of the concept and how did that relate to the early WHO ideal and perceptions over cross-cultural study of mental health? Okay, thank you, Kelvin. It's quite interesting that you, you say that in 1950s and 60s, that psychiatry, the field, was messy. Right? I guess in the sense that uh, in late 1940s, there was a very famous study about the prevalence of schizophrenia in the US and in the UK. And actually, people actually, if you work in psychiatry, you know that by that time, there was a criticism that, uh, and actually a question whether, whether that in the US, the prevalence of schizophrenia was twice of that in the UK. And so there was actually one guess uh, saying that in the US, there because psychiatrists were, were trained more psychoanalytically, and then so it's easy, it is easier for a psychiatrist in the US to diagnose patients uh, with uh, the, 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 the name of schizophrenia. But I, there were actually a lot of other reasons, right? But what was a... Uh, commonly agreed was that uh, there was no common or no internationally ratified diagnosis system, right? And for example, that there was a very, very uh, important critique from Erwin Stengel, and he was a psychiatrist, also a psychoanalyst. He was born in Vienna, and he wrote many, many papers commenting on the need to really develop an international uh, psychiatric uh, diagnosis system, right? And then so, and world citizenship was another thing, right? 
and it was not of anyone's credit. But uh, I would say that it was extensively shared by a lot of scientists. So it was a common vision among experts by that time, uh, right after Second World War. For example, like Alan Gregg, that he was a, uh, a psychiatrist working for uh, the Rockefeller Foundation in New York. And he was saying that uh, psychiatry and psychological sciences uh, have become the most important medical science after the Second World War because people are commonly uh, suffering, right? And there was also uh, some guy uh, like Ewen Cameron. Ewen Cameron was the first uh, head of World Psychiatric Association and he taught at McGill University for some years. And he was saying the same, that people were people suffering, but the world is still falling apart, right? Oh, although, actually, Edwin Cameron, uh, we understand him as a psychiatrist who, who was funded by the CIA for some brainwashing project. There was something, some, some other chapter that we can go on forever, right? But actually, uh, he was like, uh, like Brock Trisham, who did not really coin the term world citizenship, but actually they use different uh, concepts to really describe the status of uh, the, hu- hu- the, I mean, the humanity. And then we, u- we need to develop uh, a, a kind of psychiatry that belongs to, the, belongs to all mankind in the world. So Brock Chisholm uh, was not the only person who talked about world citizenship, but he was a very important figure who uh, propagated the idea and because he also sat at the very important position as the first director general of the World Health Organization. So he was promoting this idea everywhere that he knew that he did not really only want to publish with scientific journals. He also wrote extensively uh, in, uh, for example, like gardening magazines, like all these uh, uh, magazines for lay, for, lay, for lay people to read, right? So it was a common vision. And then, um, and for example, for the, the title of my book, Mad by the Millions, is also related to this kind of vision. And so Mad by the v- Millions in, in French, actually my French pronunciation is very crap, and it's uh, only a million, that was a, the f- French, uh, I mean the, the, the French, uh, translation of Mad by the Millions, but actually it was the, the original quote from a person who wrote the book, uh, The Sane Society, which is Eric Fromm. He was a philosopher, a sociologist, also a psychologist. And in early 1950s, he wrote some uh, s- several books, including this uh, very influential one, The Sane Society. And in I can't remember uh, which other book that he also wrote about. He also uh, wrote in this term, he said that just as there is a folia de, there is a folia million. That means uh, it implies that there are universal criteria for mental health which are valid for the human race as such. And the human race here, actually, according to Brachisham, all races should form a single race. Right. All ethnicities in the world now has to form a single race. This kind of idea sounds rather postmodernist, but at the time it was a shared vision. And then according to Eric Fromm, in his book, 
oh, by the way, that this book, the preface, was written by a very good friend of his, which was Ronald Hargreaves, the first uh, head of the mental health unit of the World Health, World health Organization. I mean, okay, so Eric from he said that uh, that uh, the folia million implies that there is a universal criteria for mental health. And the criteria for mental health is not one of individual adjustment to a given social order, but a universal one. It has to be valid for all men, <clears throat> right? So that's, uh, that, that, that's where uh, world citizenship sits in my book. Yeah, thank you for excellent answers. Um, I just have a lot of questions about uh, world citizenship. Will you tell us the audience more about why the Second World War is such an important turning point in the history of psychiatry? As a background well, information, yeah. Okay, the Second World War is uh, well, actually during the war, people were talking about people were talking about uh, soldiers who were devastated by war. Who become neuro, uh, who, who neurologically trauma, uh, traumatized, right? So there was a debate whether or not the trauma of uh, uh, of soldiers can be applied in uh, civi among civilians, right? But at that, at that time, there was uh, there was a uh, also a huge discussion about uh, how human beings. I mean, uh, are devastated by not only the war itself, but also the atomic bomb, and also the Holocaust in, in that that occurred in Europe, right? So it was a turning point. That was a, there was a moment. There was there was a very important moment, and and in which people believed that human beings are suffering commonly, um, in their mental health about their mental health. So that was a turning point. And also after the Second World War, that uh, people began to apply the technique and the method of uh, of, of epidemiology that was first used in infectious diseases uh, to be applied on mental health issues, right? So after that, after World War II, mental health became something that can be comparable with other infectious diseases. So it became an, an, an agenda of uh, public health, right? So that's the background. Uh, when uh, after, well, after the Second World War, mental health became a chapter of, of public health. Yeah, thank you for excellent answers. I guess historical psychiatry often encounter the very diverse classification system in 1940s and 50s. And that's why I always feel confused when I was like reading different kind of research in the past. But it's amazing to see how diverse approaches in the UK or US coexisted. But as you mentioned, or as you argue in your book, that gradually, gradually a shared vision emerged. Your book nicely explains how the shared visions, the risk relationship to develop a psychiatry belong to all mankind. And in the following chapters, in the third chapters, you discuss the first international social psychiatry project in the 1960s. You also mentioned that earlier in the interview. I know many audience who are familiar with psychiatry, of the history of psychiatry will know the term. Just to recap here, if the audience do not have a clear idea of the project. The project itself involves four perspectives, mainly standardizations of international classification of psychiatric diagnosis. Second is the comparative research on specific mental disorders. 
effort about research on mental disorders in geographically defined populations and for training in epidemiological techniques. Henry used a very interesting metaphor to describe the project as a hit and run plan in baseball that the researchers in the WHO move forward without knowing it uh, in which direction they're going to. Will mind introducing more about the project to our audience in terms of the background, content, and importance? Okay, sure. And so we really have to say something about uh, the Constitution of Health that was written in 1946. Uh, in the, well, actually, I think all, all, all of us studying the history of global health can recite it, which was health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Right, so you can see that mental, uh, the, the word mental was already inserted in the definition of health by the World Health Organization. But within the first uh, decade of the uh, World Health Organization, that the uh, um, WHO could not really develop something that was robust enough to tackle mental health agenda. Right. There were several saying. Uh, Brock Chisholm himself, as a psychiatrist, Canadian psychiatrist, who was reluctant in developing mental health research in the organization, and pe some people guessed that it was because he, as the director general, he wants, wanted to distance himself from develop developing something uh, that is of his own interest. Uh, but uh, there was also people saying, that it was because after the Second World War, uh, still, for example, like typh uh, typhoid fever, uh, cholera, uh, malaria, they were still too rampant uh, for the organizations to focus on mental health issues, right? So within the first uh, 10 years of WHO's existence that in the field of mental health, well, there was just a very, very slow progress. But there were people who were trying to uh, to to make things different. Uh, for example, like Michael Harvard, that uh, he was the head of the National Association for Mental Health uh, in the UK. And if in the UK people know that it uh, has renamed to become the charity called Mind, right? So NAMH that uh, uh, Michael Harvard he wanted to really to develop something. Uh, to call for a congress among experts who can gather in one place to discuss how we can develop mental health research globally. I mean, at the time, they used the word internationally. So in 1948, this uh, international congress of mental health was held in London for one week. And it's very interesting that in the congress, the composition of the congress was half psychiatrists, and half of the delegates were social scientists, for example, like, for example, like sociologists and anthropologists, right? And after this one week of discussion, they, they came across a uh, the suggestion uh, in the conclusion, saying that they okay they have to form. Uh, they suggested that in the WHO you need to form an expert committee on mental health, right? And then uh, after. The, commit, uh, the, the committee, and actually under the, uh, the, the committee was formed under the mental health unit in the WHO. But for the first 10 years, they, were, they held tons of 
study groups, seminars, but they were not able really to uh, come across a, uh, a, a, an effective research agenda. They discussed about a lot of things, for example, like children's welfare, children's developmental psychology, delinquency problems, alcoholism, and also the fear of automation. This is quite interesting that they were talk, uh, uh, actually very concerned about the ne- negative impact of machinery right, in the 1950s. Right. But actually, although they were reluctant to develop uh, the effective research, there was some common sense. And for example, like Ronald Hargreave, the first uh, director of the mental health unit, he said that we need a manageable project. And the project should really look at the etiology, which means the causation of mental illnesses. Why do human beings develop psychiatric symptoms? And second, he wanted to study the stresses during uh, human development. Uh, and what he means by these stresses were not the atomic bombing, this was not the Holocaust, it was, for example, these are very minor stresses during humans' development. For example, so, uh, for example, uh, weaning from mother's breasts, going to school, going to work, these kind of stresses. And what he want, uh, what he wanted was to develop a preventive psychiatry, right? And from individuals to uh, to community. And lastly, he wanted a large scale and systematic approach of international collaboration. And that was the background of IPSS, okay? And then so uh, the the psychiatrists recruited by the unit, they they wanted to, to, they, they, they were asking the question, whether or not mental disorders or psychiatric diseases, they look alike internationally, right? And so the first uh, disease they looked at was schizophrenia because that kind of mental illness was the most obvious one, right? And so the unit, uh, after the IPSS was proposed, that they uh, managed to recruit experts from worldwide. And in this project, they designed uh, a, a diagnostic exercise in- interview tool called PSE, called Present State Examination. That was developed by a psychiatrist based in London. His name is John Wing. And they standardized the interview tool st- uh, by translating the tool into nine different languages and then they translated these different language versions of uh, the, uh, the PSE back to English right? and then so they conducted diagnostic exercises in different field research centers right so these are participating countries nine different participating countries and then so based on the interview with uh, these schizophrenic patients who were admitted to uh, these field research centers by observing and analyzing the uh, the present state in examination, they wanted to gather, they want to collect the symptoms they were observing during these exercises, and then and then they at the headquarters they discussed whether or not these symptoms were universally alike, right? 
and then they also manage to process these data collected in different field research centers using computational machines. And then, so this is quite interesting. There was only one uh, diagnosis, schizophrenia, that was discussed, that was analyzed uh, using this kind of diagnostic criteria. And then, uh, but at the same time, they were doing another project in the International Social Psychiatry Project, which was uh, the international classification of diseases, right? So they were actually classifying uh, mental disorders at the same time trying to find the evidence of the commonality of uh, mental disorders looking alike, right? And so there was only one uh, uh, diagnosis that was examined. That's why I called the project Hit and Run. So there was only, uh, when when it comes across, uh, for example, experts discussing whether or not uh, depressive symptoms can also look alike universally, they were quite reluctant to de- to develop another diagnostic anal- uh, diagnosis. I mean, diagnostic exercises for other psychiatric disorders other than schizophrenia, right? So, uh, so there was only one proof of mental disorders that uh, look really alike in the project. So that's hit and run, and then so the IPSS has got some achievements. Right. And actually, when the WHO made the conclusion of IPSS achievement, the, the conclusion was made quite conservatively. They said that international co- cooperation was possible. So it was, it was feasible. And then at least that they proved the universality of symptoms profiles of one mental disorder that was schizophrenia but only based on one, uh, uh, the, one evidence, they successfully rewrote the chapter five of ICD, which was the mental disorder chapter of international classification of diseases. And they, they said that at least that they provided golden standards for under, I mean, for diagnos- diagnostic criteria for underdeveloped countries to use, right? So this is the brief summary of what, uh, the, the the project is all about. Thank you for your answer, Henry. Um, you mentioned an interesting point here, a manageable project, whether the plan was practical or not from the perspective of Hargreave or from the WHO, how they organized the project. That naturally links to, links to the next chapters about how and why local experts participate in the project. In chapter four, you turn to Taiwan to examine Zhong Yiling, a well-known figure in the Chinese-speaking world of psychiatry experts. This chapter shows a new pattern of scientific exchange beyond the simple dichotomy between the imperial center and the local. You examine Africa, Latin America, and Taiwan as a way to observe local dynamic and how they responded to the WHO call for a standardization of classifications. How would you describe and evaluate Lin's participations in the WHO and in leading the WHO's project in particular? And how does that help us rethink the process of knowledge productions and idea about scientific internationalism? Okay, uh, this is a very big question. I think this is a very big question. And uh, my story is not only about Taiwan. I write about Taiwan is because I know it better. 
And in this chapter, I actually initially looked at three different cases. I looked at uh, Latin America. I also looked at Africa. And then I took extra lengths to talk about Taiwan. And the person that was recruited from Taiwan to head the project of IPSS as the medical officer in the WHO, Tony Lin, he was not a well-known figure at all. And nowadays, when people talk about the achievement of IPSS and and also maybe the next project, Dosmed, people know another person better, which was Norman Sartorius. But Tony Lin was... Uh, the first person who was recruited to head the project. And uh, then that led to the question about who experts are, right? So who can become an expert in the WHO's uh, uh, project? So the WHO wanted uh, uh, to recruit expertise, I mean experts, to develop their expertise and represent their own cultures. And then so this was a very interesting and important strategy called outsourcing to make sure that it is the, the, I, the knowledge formation, the model of knowledge formation was not top down. It's, it was horizontal. So they want all these experts coming from developing or underdeveloped countries to represent themselves equivalently and so Tony Lin was one of them, of, of course. So he was born in Ta- he was born in Taiwan, but educated entirely during the wartime in Japan in Tokyo. And there is a an interesting genealogy there. So Tony Lin uh, studied psychiatry, medicine, and psychiatry in Tokyo under the teaching of Yushi Uchimura. And Yushi Uchimura was famous for his research in cross-cultural psychiatry. He did research in the Hokkaido, and then actually he found a lot of psychiatric disorders unique only to the Ainu uh, ethnicity community, I mean, right? And Yuji Uchimura was a, uh, a student of Emil Kripling. I mean, for, histo- for people who are interested in the history of psychiatry, uh, we, we know about the name of Emil Kripling, who was a German psychiatrist uh, conducting extensive cross-cultural fieldwork in Java. Right? So you can see this genealogy there. Kriplin, Uchimura, Lin. Right? And Kriplin was actually quite a... His research was extensively racialized. Also, uh, for, for Uchimura's as well, he was a social Darwinist for sure. For Lin, he was not that... His take was not really that racialized. Um, when he came to uh, really the, 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 I mean, the post-war period. And uh, so when the WHO was looking for uh, people they could recruit to join the project, they were looking at studies that were being conducted worldwide. And there were several famous ones, for example, like uh, in the UK, uh, in the southeast uh, London, there was a group of uh, psychiatrists looking at the Camberwell registers, uh, using the hospital, hospital registers to study the prevalence of uh, mental disorders there. And in the U.S., there was also very famous Sterling County. Uh, I mean, the North America. There was uh, 
this very famous Stirling County study. In Africa as well, that for example, like T.A. Lambo, T.A. Lambo eventually became a, another director general of the world of the WHO. And he, in 1940s and 50s, he also conducted this Arrow Cornell uh, study in Lin in Taiwan. After he returned from Japan to Taiwan, he conducted a three Chinese townships and four Aboriginal uh, uh, community surveys. And between 1948 and 1952, he actually replicated his teacher's method in Hokkaido. And he made the best use of some kind of uh, community-based system of civil control. And as to act around, in these villages, he conducted surveys, whether or not you see people looking differently, looking abnormally, and who had some kind of signs of mental disorders. And he used the best of this kind of a hoko system, right? And then really to produce a very, uh, two very extensive reports on mental illness of prevalence among the communities he, he studied. And his finding was rather optimistic. Although the method was uh, later criticized for being flawed in terms of, for example, like age and sex correction, things like that. His research result was perfect for the WHO to consult as a local expert, because in this finding, he found that for common mental disorders, they were all alike among uh, different Chinese communities and among uh, Aboriginal communities, right? So that's, uh, so uh, Ronald Hargreaves, he was a very extensively read person that he, uh, he was like, like a scout, scouting for stars from different regional offices. And then, so he noticed that Lin's research was interesting. So when there was once, in 1950, I can't remember when, and then he was traveling to participate in a seminar in the Philippines, the West Pacific Regional Office, when on the way back to Geneva, he passed by Taipei and he wanted to see Lin. And then he immediately invited Lin to become a consultant uh, of his so-called manageable project. And eventually Lin became the medical officer of IPSS, uh, which was the International Social Psychiatry Project. And so my chapter on talking about experts, it's uh, actually, historically, that's a combination of WHO's decentralization effort. And also what I spent less, uh, uh, I, I didn't really talk much about was the developing countries self-fashioning I mean, for example, like Tsongi Lin, educated in Japan, becoming a head, the head of a very small psychiatric department in Taipei. He wanted to uh, join the WHO as a representative representing a country that was just now decolonized. So this chapter more detailedly analyzes how an expert from an underdeveloped country who aspired himself to become a technocrat that was equivalent to those he met at the, uh, at the headquarters in Geneva.
Right? So this is all about what what I mean experts, right? In my book. Yes, thanks for your answer. And moving away from expert, you examine something very interesting in the next chapter about technology. In producing a common language psychiatry, you argue technology play a key role for psychiatrists. So you went, for example, like numeral thinking, information technology for communication, standardized interviews with patients, translations, videotape, and even computer computing software. I'm sure this chapter will be of great interest to scholars who are working on science, technology, and society study. Will you tell us more about how technological advancements after the World War II shaped the International Social Psychiatry Project and psychiatry as a profession? Okay, thank you, Kelvin. I mean, technology has always been a less concern in the history of mental health, right? When you talk about when we talk about mental well. Well, the history of psychiatry, we look at asylums, we look at hospitals, where we look at how uh, institutions control humans' mind. But we talk really less about technology. But as I mentioned earlier, that during the first 10 years of the WHO, they talked a, a lot about the fear of automation. In other words, experts were worried about the, the development of machines worrying that it might have some kind of negative impact on uh, humans' uh, adaptation, capacity of adaptation. But very interestingly, psychiatrists, since, let's say, two centuries ago, were never late to catch up with the new technology. Right? And for example, they were fascinated by the use of image technology. Right. So what does that mean then? What does image mean in, in psychiatry? The, I mean, what a picture can tell is actually something, it's, it's all about objectivity. Okay. For example, like um, at Bedlam, a famous asylum in London, there was a superintendent called Hugh, uh, Hugh Diamond that he uh, was a, actually he was very interested in photography. And he believed that he can use photography to help him diagnose patients, inmates in Bedlam. And in Paris, Jean-Martin Charcot, a famous uh, neurologist, uh, Sigmund Freud's teacher, right? He was uh, fascinated also by uh, the use of photography to help him document uh, his patients, his uh, hysterical patients. And so by 1950s, image technology had already uh, uh, got advanced from still images to motion pictures. So people, uh, psychiatrists began to use motion pictures as their image technology, a tool. For example, like uh, if uh, people who study developmental psychology wouldn't be unfamiliar with the name uh, John Bowlby. John Bowlby was a big name for attachment theory, right? And he actually collaborated with a psychoanalyst. His name is James Robertson, who was actually uh, this kind of person, uh, a kind of a very geeky person who was who used uh, uh, motion pictures to help him examine what he saw in the hospital. 
I mean, James Robertson, he's, he's got a very interesting video called A Two-Year-Old Goes to Hospital. Now, this is a small background of using motion pictures. James Robertson uh, used handheld cameras to document those children who were left, uh, who were under care of Children's Hospital in London after 1950s. And then, you know, that after 1950s in, in London, Oh, in Greater London area, there were a lot of mushrooming as hosp hospitals alike that they because uh, fathers were gone, and then children were left in care. So there are uh, a lot of facilities. Uh, they 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 became more and more. James Robertson that he uh, he filmed these children who were claimed to be under careful care of these hospitals. They were actually crying throwing tantrums and becoming aggressive and extreme, becoming extremely anxious in front of his camera. So his video actually irritated a lot of hospitals at that time. But his camera spoke the truth that children needed attachment. Right? So actually, John Bowlby used this kind of narrative to propagate is attachment theory. So, so this, this is the importance of how image technology became central to developing a medical theory. And when it comes to WHO's project, I mean, John Bowlby was also a, uh, a, a consultant of WHO in the early 1950s. Now, when the WHO wanted to develop uh, international social psychiatry project, especially in the specific project IPSS, I call it a technological turn. See, when when experts were at first initial, uh, they, they they were worried about automation. After ten years, when they were develop, developing uh, this IPSS, they had to rely on technology. For example, they they relied on videography. They film uh, patients. Who are admitted in psychiatric hospitals using certain brand of uh, of, of video, um, certain kind of uh, uh, actually videotape of certain brand of certain width running at certain speed. Everything was standardized, right? And they use communication technologies for international collaboration purposes. They also relied on data storage and data processing technology for them to analyze all these interviews collected in uh, field research centers worldwide. And at that time, the computing machines was, were very big. We know that personal computers didn't really exist until, until late 1970s. So in WHO's project, they were using this really bulky, large-sized computers to process the data and they, these tapes can be only sent to London, Geneva, and Bethesda uh, to, to, uh, for, pro, for pro processing. So, so in my book, technology has a role. It carries some kind of meaning. First, it's actually, it proves again that psychiatrists were never late in catching, catching up using the most up-to-date technologies to help them uh, doing uh, research. So it was the objective, uh, objectivity that they pursue.
And psychiatrists also believe that technology can surpass humans' capacity in analyzing things they saw. For example, when Tsongyi Lin, when he recalled uh, when, when he was planning the project, he said that the computer, a computer, was different from clinician's diagnosis. He believed that it works. Uh, for example, there was a quote. He said that, that it works for us carefully and, uh, carefully and objectively. Therefore, the exactness, trustworthiness, fixity, and integrity could be ensured. And it, also, it is also neutral without partiality. And then it's, quite, it's, it's very interesting that when uh, uh, ICD-9 was, uh, was about to be published, there were also some kind of optimistic voices among experts thinking that, okay, uh, maybe in the, well, in the future, I mean, I mean ICD-9 was in the 1960s to early 1970s, and there were, there were people at that time were already thinking that maybe in the future, five-digit subdivision of diagnostic codes, uh, codes could overcome the exist, uh, existing three-digit ICD system, right? And then so this is fascinating. Nowadays, psychiatrists are already thinking that uh, the ICD systems, uh, the system is already too complex. They want to really make the system more simple. But if we think back, if we look at Look back on the 19, in the 1960s, the people were fascinated about producing longer digit codes of uh, psychiatric diagnosis. So this is something that is interesting in my book. Thanks for your answer, Henry. I think uh, what you said nicely tell a narrative about how the involvement of local experts for outsourcing strategies adopted by WHO and the use of new technology, how that all comes together after the Second World War shows uh, the making or the constitutions of the International Social Psychiatric Project. So in the, in the last chapter in your book, you more critically evaluate the significance of the project and also the rather short-lived optimism of a universal standard for diagnosing, diagnosing uh, mental illness. The ICD-9 and the International Pilot Study of Schizophrenia at first were understood as a success of the WHO. It were contested by many psychiatrists and professionals like Harvard Kleinman, Alice Cohen, and many others. So in, in the very end, you tell a story that is still relevant to a dilemma faced by the contemporary world in terms of diagnosis and classifications. How will you describe the legacy of the International Social Psychiatry Project, and how does that shed light on the current debate about transcultural psychiatry and global mental health? Okay. Right. Uh, I think this question is more relevant to uh, currently practicing clinicians uh, in psychiatry and psychology. And first of all, although there are criticisms in my book, I would really say that the project conducted, uh, conducted by the WHO was quite phenomenal in its historical sense. Right? It at least uh, proved uh, that it's a proof of international effort in the WHO that was very different from its original vertical approach. For example, that in early 1950s, there was this project, very extravagant project of malaria eradication project, which actually failed in 1960s, right? So it was th that kind of a knowledge formation uh, model 
through the lens of mental illness. That was a, a very unique one in the WHO's history. And so it's, it's, the legacy was quite extensive. So it at least opened a constant debate on about the commonality of mental disorders. So people are still talking about whether or not psychiatric disorders um, look alike universally. What I mean by the transient optimism was about how the project tackled uh, culture. So uh, for, for the WHO that it wanted to prove whether or not mental disorders look alike universally. But uh, to, in order to prove that, they need to standardize a diagnostic tool. Uh, in the case of IPSS, that was PSE. But when they were developing PSE, a lot of culturally sensitive questions were eliminated, right? For example, like uh, something about religion, something about uh, problematic behaviors, for example, like drinking. Right? These kind of uh, questions had to be eliminated. Right? But at the same time, at the same time, I mean of uh, the, when, I, when IPSS was being conducted in the 1960s, it was also a, the time when a lot of cultural bound syndromes were increasingly described in Southeast Asia, Latin America and Africa, of course, as well, right? And for example, that nowadays, well, we are not unfamiliar with Koro, Lata, running Amok, this kind of phenomena, they were being described uh, more and more, uh, the, the, uh, they were, they, there were more and more these kind of descriptions, right? Emerging in the same period at the same period in the 1960s, right? So this is very interesting. Now, the WHO wanted to uh, look at mental disorders in different cultures, but in order to conduct their exercise, they had to really put culture aside and then letting other uh, narratives about culture uh, emerge. And also, during the 1960s, when the WHO was conducting its project, it left out entirely China, the largest country that was suffering from uh, cholera, that was suffering from uh, actually starvation and cultural revolution, that they, these, the, the country was largely ignored. And then it's quite interesting, after... Uh, well, in late 1970s, after the uh, the opening reform and opening up project, that uh, the chi- China actually it got aware that the mental health issues among its citizens need to be tackled, and they found that the WHO's ICD system was not that useful, right? And because there are a lot of in, in terms of the forms, also the content of suffering among Chinese people, it was quite significantly different from um, those people in the West, right? 
So they had to develop their own diagnostic system. It's called CCM, the Chinese Classification of Mental Disorders. Right. Yeah, so and nowadays, right? So since 1990s, there were a lot of criticisms about, about the WHO's diagnostic system. For example, like what you just mentioned, Arthur Kleinman, that he went into China and, and he found that the Chinese people, they did not really present uh, depressive symptoms. And they, uh, a lot of their symptoms were somaticized. That, uh, that means that they expressed their low mood by actually presenting headache, uh, backache, right? This kind of a very atypical symptoms. And so Arthur Kleinman, he proposed uh, a new kind of approach called new cross-cultural psychiatry. And after that, there were a lot of other initiatives, right? And then so, uh, for example, like global mental health was, was one of them it was proposed after the year 2000. And it was proposed to scale up the services of mental health in most about uh, in mostly it's uh, in in underdeveloped countries, and there is an 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 irony there that global mental health it focuses on so called uh, the partnership, mutual respect, and shared vision of improving lives of people. Who have mental illness and to improve the mental health systems for everyone in the globe right so this is a who's no i mean the global mental health central spirit about mutual respect about about partnership about cross-disciplinarity but this is very interesting in 1950s there was also a very in, very important figure in mental health who got extensively involved in WHO's project was the anthropologist Margaret Mead. She left uh, World Federation for Mental Health with disillusionment, right? She was not happy about that her role as an anthropologist was be became marginalized in the field. Right? So you can see that uh, WHO over time, it gradually evolved to, to become an enterprise that was mostly kind of a uh, that uh, conducted. Well, I, I mean, the an enterprise that was. Uh, I don't like the word, but people say they was hijacked by medical doctors. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So so my story actually tells a fact that after Second World War, WHO WHO's design actually failed to predict a widening gap uh, in today's world, for example, between rich and poor countries, and a more disorganized and more dis disintegrated world nowadays we can see. And now people are talking about we are suffering from so-called the tyranny of metrics. We have so many different criteria, diagnostic criteria, but they are not accountable for the actual mental suffering in different parts of the world that are socially or culturally determined. Right. So this is uh, uh, how my uh, my story can imply 
to uh, to to nowadays discussion about global mental health, really. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your work with us today. I think uh, your work really shows uh, bridge different fields together and prove uh, and you put together a very convincing narrative to show how the WHO attempt to construct a universal classification system. And I guess if our audience have more questions, they should go get this amazing book immediately. So in the very end of the interview, we also share more about your next research topic, what is in your mind and what you are working now. Is there any connection with the book? Okay, thank you. Right, I actually I I'm interested in a lot of things, not only mm, uh, mental health. I also look at other areas in the history of medicine, and for example, like other well, mostly about non-infectious diseases. But if uh, on mental health, I have two more uh, more projects. Uh, one for one project I have just now uh, published it. It's about trauma that I focused in my doctoral thesis, right? And then so in the most recent uh, issue of Journal of Trauma and Dissociation, I published something about how film technology influenced the, the development of trauma psychiatry. I talked about mainly in the 1960s how uh, the theory of mental imagery was formed and how actually uh, nowadays uh, scientists are not really able to catch up with the narrative form of trauma by just looking at, uh, the, I mean, technology, right? And then so also I'm trying to develop a project about the, the history of psychiatric epidemiology. This is a, a continuous work uh, that was derived from uh, the book, uh, This Mad by the Millions. So this book is about a, the, the post-war development of uh, psychiatric epidemiology. epidemiology. But now I'm looking uh, to an earlier period I'm tracing the origins of numerical thinking in psychiatry in East Asia, um, maybe originated from Japan during Meiji period, and then to uh, Taiwan, Korea, and to China and Southeast East Asia through its colonial projects. Right. So I'm trying really to answer why global mental health is actually absent in East Asia. So we are so fascinated about using um, the most advanced kind of psychiatry. But then uh, when people are talking about global mental health in East Asia, why there are no people talking about it? So this is my next project. Oh, these are all fascinating and promising projects. We can't wait to see more of your work in the future. So thank you for coming today and taking your time to do the interview. It's really a pleasure, a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm sure the audience must have learned a lot from it. Also, thank you for writing this important book. Uh, thank you, Kelvin. It's my honor and my pleasure too. <laughs>